My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Kim Lowe. Kim is a conflict resolution and negotiation specialist, a leadership coach, and co-author of the amazing book, Compassionate Conversations, How to Speak and Listen from the Heart. Kim cut her teeth as a lawyer in London and Singapore, learning how to negotiate high-stakes disputes in international and corporate fields, but she quickly realized that she wasn't satisfied with these ways of resolving conflict, ways that, by design, could only deliver win-lose situations. A huge turning point came when she began to incorporate integral theory and Zen Buddhism lenses into her conflict work, helping her understand that there was so much more available than most of us realize when it comes to dialoguing with and negotiating with people who we think of as our opponents or enemies. She went deeper into this work by getting her master's at Columbia University in negotiation and conflict resolution, and later went on to work with the United Nations in New York, researching peacebuilding, mediation, and gender issues with organizations from across the globe. As you'll hear in our conversation today, Kim is deeply attuned to the dynamics in groups and in dialogue and the ways of which we can make those dynamics conscious and visible, we can actually work with them, learn from them, and reach resolutions that aren't compromises where nobody's happy, but actually potentially reach resolutions where everyone is happy because they see what's possible for all involved. So this is a really inspiring, challenging, deeply provoking conversation, and I hope that in these fiery times, it sparks in you some possibility for how you want to show up in situations where you feel like you're on one side of the the debate or one side of the battle. So let's get settled in (sighs) and hear what Kim has for us. Hi, Kim. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a treat. You know, when we first got connected, I was immediately struck with the way you stand for people working across conflict. And I just like, I encounter you as someone who, and tell me if this resonates with you, but I encounter you as someone who has a real beautiful combination of steadiness and underneath that, a fire that seems to burn really brightly. Like this, there's an urgency that doesn't produce a franticness. A lot of times the urgency produces a frankness, but there's like an urgency that produces this real steady focus. And I think it's a, I'm really excited to share that with everyone listening today. Thank you. That's, that's generous praise and a a beautiful metaphor, I suppose, for that fire burning within. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I didn't plan this, but I'm tuning in before, before the call, we were talking about fires because you're in, 
you're in California and fortunately it sounds like you're somewhere relatively safe, which I'm really glad to hear, but we just, we are living through remarkable, often anxiety producing, often pretty scary times that are uh, impacting many people across the globe in many ways. Um, we're seeing people being forced out of their homes in almost every country in the world as a result of war and climate change. And as much as many of us here in the States would like to ignore all of those dynamics, now we're even seeing it in our own backyards. And yeah. I know that you've spent years traveling internationally, working in conflict spaces to help people work in and through conflict. And we're going to look at all of that together, but I'd love to hear in this moment, like what's alive for you in the midst of all of this global intensity and social and political polarization? Like how are you moving through your day these days? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good question. I, I do feel the intensity that you're describing. I do think that it's just, it's a lot at one time, you know, I think for those of us who care so deeply about the the changes to our climate, the devastation of all those biospheres and mm. the injustices that create so much suffering and oppression for people, like in our systems that cut us this way and that around who we are, the color of our skin, you know, the, this, the kind of sexual orientation or our preferences or our religious beliefs, like it's, it's kind of savage out mm. there. Like the intensity, mm. the dial has been turned up and I'm feeling that a lot. Mm. And at the same time, because of maybe the experiences that I've had or maybe just some straight up choices that I've made around how I want to view this predicament, this life paradox that we're in, um, I feel like I'm concentrated into what matters. Like that's where I, I want to be concentrated, mm. concentrating my focus mm. into what really matters. I want to trust the process that the fire, the fire is not the enemy, you know, mm. that the fire is here to teach us something. And I, I, I'm very interested in um, alchemy and shamanism and that which is magical and intangible. And so I think of it a little bit like being in a crucible, Mm. you know and a, a mm. crucible of transformation mm. so as much as I feel terrified and sometimes really despairing um I'm 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 also stepping like I'm stepping back and letting myself fall into this deep current that's that's going to keep going and there's a surrender into the process that for me has felt really meaningful and maybe has helped me cope better and allowed me to live how I want to in, mm. in these times mm. I imagine that's beautiful, and I'm struck by the fact that I can, at the, speaking for myself, I can identify a part in me that longs for what you just described, and I can also identify another part in me that is really scared of surrendering. And I wonder if you have a sense of like, when did you first make that choice to go towards what matters, to surrender to the current and go towards what matters, and why? And then like, what does it look like? what did it look like? How might others who are wrestling with this question of surrender to that, which they can't control, like, mm. how do we do that? What does surrender look like? Mm. Yeah, that is, that is such a good question. And I think, yeah, helpful for us to contemplate at this, this time, because, um, well, maybe just to pad out what we're talking about here, 
I think about surrender and control as mm. kind of existing on this axis, maybe in relationship, and that we we have we have choice, right, as to how much control we can exert or how much we're going to just surrender into what is. Mm. And there's so many fundamental dualities like that in life, like, you know, the masculine masculine and the feminine, the sun and the moon, right, left and right, this and that. Like, we're always kind of, like, dealing in this world duality. So surrender to me has to be in relationship with, like, how much am I controlling? Where am I resisting or exerting a projection? Maybe I'm projecting, like, what I think it should be or how I want to feel or anything like that. So for me, the process of surrender also involves me looking at the places where I still see myself controlling, clinging, you know, wanting it to be a certain way, having reactions when it's not. Mm. Um, but you, you ask a good question there, like, is there a, is there maybe a starting point or maybe an initiating moment that got me to into that? Um, I don't think I can quite locate that. I think to me, surrender at the moment feels more like a daily practice of like noticing where I'm clinging and then softening. Mm. And there's a lot of, I mean, practices of trust and gratitude, I think help tremendously. Mm. Um, But if I, but I can locate something in my lifetime, which I think has maybe put me into relationship with it in this way. And I think it has something to do with, um, being 12 years old and my parents getting divorced and it's so beyond my control. Do you know what I mean? It's like the family unit is kind of crumbling. People are being really kind of harsh on each other. There's a lot of pain and it's so out of my control. Mm. And I don't think that, you know, I, I had like good tools or communication sort of skills at that time to be able to express myself and find my way. But whatever it was, that karma of life put me in touch with the part of me that um, is actually very intrigued by conflict. Like it captures me. I care deeply, you know, when our, our sense of coexistence is threatened because of our inability to relate in a way that affirms our humanity mm-hmm. you know and wants for us both to thrive and survive in these times so so I think personal circumstances put me in touch with conflict and then later in life for sure I was choosing to study it but in a way like it shows me like it it's what I couldn't stop thinking about caring about wanting to help people with um so maybe I'm surrendered into the cause in that way Mm. and it's not an easy road and sometimes I wish I could be doing something else (laughs) but at the same time you know like um I I trust that we're all being called to help this world or this circumstance or each other Mm. in um like in faithfulness to our gifts Mm. yeah Mm. there's a quality I'm getting on what you're describing about like actually there's there's a way in which we need to really tune into the call and for you, it sounds like you first heard that call when your parents divorced and you f- were both totally swept away by how much pain and uncertainty and lack of control there was. And yet at the same time, you noticed that there was something that drew you towards it. Even as that tor- sort of totally destructured life as you knew it, there was some something else that was saying, don't run away from that. Go towards yeah. that. Yeah. And... I don't know. I'm just like, I'm thinking about Jiddu Krishnamurti's quote, which is something like, you know, it's no sign of health to be well-adjusted in, in a messed up world or a sick world. Yeah. 
and I'm, and for some reason that's emerging for me as you talk about the way in which conflict actually has something for us, has something to teach us or something to show us about our common humanity. Because my sense is that most of us, certainly I have a pattern of when conflict arises, my default mode is to run away. My default mode is not to answer the call of conflict, but instead to, to reharmonize it or smooth it or ignore it or retreat from it. So I'm wondering if you could say more about, about how that call sounds to you or what you're seeing in, in conflict that, that might help those like me who are over, feel a bit more overwhelmed by it or feel a bit more scared by it or feel a bit more polarized by it and feel like we have to pick one side or the other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think what you're describing in, in like conflict language, we would describe that as a, an avoidance pattern. Mm-hmm tendency to step back from the conflict rather than lean in the other then this is very um this is very crude kind of broad brush but we have the the avoidance pattern we have the aggressor pattern Mm. where someone is actually more um wired towards the fight and actually can get some energy and enjoys it sometimes which is kind of cool but also can be can be destructive you know depending on the situation but then we also have the accommodating pattern where those Mm. of us um it's kind of a little bit like the avoidance pattern and that there's something in us that's like, this is not safe. This is not okay. But the strategy is to like mold around it and make it, make it okay. Sometimes at the sacrifice to one's own priorities or beliefs is, is accommodation. So I think when, um, when I was younger, I had kind of an aggressor thing in me. I think mm-hmm. I kind of got that a little bit. I just, um, maybe it was like, my mom, she, she has a pretty strong energy and she can be quite outspoken about things. And so maybe I was just <laughs> quarreling with her as a kid and I picked up on that. But, but I can find places in myself where I'm super avoidant. And actually, funnily, through doing this conflict work, I've become more avoidant in some ways, even though I feel more equipped. Um, mm. and I think it's, so I think what's right about avoidance is that... Um, spaciousness can really help Mm. knowing how to give a conflict space giving people time to like step back and think what matters to me here how do I want to engage um that can be helpful but it's not helpful if we just turn around and we never come back right I think that working with our nervous systems and working with our bodies is absolutely fundamental so that's definitely the advice that I would give out to someone listening who feels that they get overwhelmed or get knocked off their feet where it's just not safe to engage. And then, yeah, I think learning to, um, to be in our bodies, to be a witness for uncomfortable sensations and feelings is paramount because when we can't sustain that, we can't stay in that space of discomfort, um, then we're always going to be slightly running away from our own reactions. And that limits our creativity limits our ability to hear each other it limits our ability to like say what's really important to us because we feel like the danger is really high um i have so many thoughts about this so feel free to like interrupt me and direct me there's i love i love what you're playing with here and there's the thing i'm tuning into is this kind of way in which our reaction to the conflict and the conflict itself although they are intimately connected are not the same thing and that that we can form a relationship to our reaction to conflict that allows us to to develop more choice and agency than we normally have 
I think I'm actually probably ultimately more a bit of a, an accommodator. If I think if I, those three distinctions are super helpful. I'm like, oh yeah, got it. There's some avoidance, some accommodation, a desire to be able to go forward more aggressively, but I'm not quite there yet. So and in that sense, I could almost imagine me doing some work around working with my nervous system, how it feels to be more aggressive and what that does to me and what someone else's aggression does to me so that I can notice my reaction and engage with it rather than simply be set off into my default pattern as soon as it's triggered. Yeah, definitely. Just on that note, I think that the, the if there is a goal for, for all of us who are interested in, in developing in this space, I think it would be to make all three available choices mm. there's going to be moments conflicts where one of them is the skillful path mm. right and there's going to be choice there's going to be other situations where if we just do the same thing we're not giving ourselves full spectrum choice we're just repeating it a default so um so i think it's about creating more freedom in ourselves so that things aren't habitual but chosen so you can choose mm. to move away we can choose mm. to lean in we can yeah and working with our nervous systems um just kind of more practical note on that. I think stillness practice is a great way of learning to be with sensations and recalibrate, you know, things come up in meditation that can provoke anger, can provoke frustration, Mm. sadness, despair. All of it is us joy. It's all us. Right. And, and when we learn to sit with it and continue with our breathing and continue with our feeling and our witnessing, we can learn to recalibrate our nervous system to see reality for what it is, own those reactions that are us, instead of pointing out there and saying it's it's that it's that conflict, it's that person. You know, we can take more of a radical responsibility for our state. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I love that you're pointing out stillness practice because I had before I I've been doing this that kind of work now for about a decade, and when I first started the journey, I had this really funny in retrospect idea in my head that stillness practice was about a sort of it was about just like emptying everything. And there is a quality of emptying that can be really beautiful and powerful, but it was sort of like, as soon as I sat down, my mind or parts of me would start engaging. And and then I would be like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Oh, I can't meditate, right? Like there's a sort of classic beginner's paradox in that what you think isn't is the work actually isn't the work. Like the work is to, to then to really engage with, well, what are the patterns of arising that come up? What does my mind do when it has space to, to just roam? And how does that roaming, what does that do in my body? Does it increase my heart rate? Does it make me frustrated? Does it make me want to suddenly go get chocolate for no reason, right? Like there are all mm-hmm. these ways in which we suddenly start to notice all of these default patterns that, that until that moment, they were invisible. They were part of the water that we're swimming in. Yeah. And I just want to like invite people who are listening going like, okay, meditation sounds cool, but I can't meditate. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who often says like, that's like saying you shouldn't brush your teeth because you're dirty or you shouldn't, yeah. you shouldn't take a shower because you're dirty. It's like, no, that's why you take a shower to like get that space again, to get that cleanliness again. And the meditation does a sort of similar thing. So that's okay. great. You've got, there's like kind of the, that's the nervous system work. That's the psychological work. Mm-hmm. And if we do that over time, what I hear you say is we'll, we'll develop more awareness of our default and then we'll have more choice about this situation calls for me to be more aggressive or this situation, I should back off and give it some space. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, can I just add something in? Please. Like, I, don't yeah. know, I feel like in this moment that we're in, in culture and what we now know about um, 
how's how's the best way to put this? We know so much about what we carry with us from experiences as a child, Mm -hmm. what it might have been like when we were still, you know, in utero. Mm -hmm. For those of us who believe in past lives and we what we kind of might think that we're carrying in in this Mm. life like we are we are becoming aware of so much more than we ever have been Mm. um and so i think that that's in some ways it can be overwhelming because because it's like there's there's just so much you know to to be aware of and be sensitive to um the i think the point that i want to make is around trauma Mm. Um, I think that we're all, all of us human beings, actually, I mean, I think it's part of like why we're down here on earth incarnated is because there are things for us to know. Mm. There are things for us to learn and there are things for us to heal from. I think that's kind of part of our work as human beings. Mm. Um, and it's really important that, you know, people who are maybe sort of tuned into that, that mode of self, um, inquiry, um, to be really compassionate with themselves. Like, I think that I was kind of um, a bit harsh to myself. Like maybe mm-hmm. when I, I can feel that part of me that's like, oh, why can't I meditate better? Why can't mm-hmm. I silence my mind? Or why can't I say what I want to say in this moment? Like, why is this so hard? Why do I feel myself completely like, you know, head flushed or hands shaking or heart beating? All of those are, are real. And we can't just put them aside and mind our way, like brain our way out of it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, we have stillness practices that help us come back home. And at the same time, if we are working with um, somatic trauma responses or reasons why um, engaging, maybe aggression is a strong word, but just staying engaged, there are some of us for whom the threat is just going to feel too high. Even mm. if it's a fight about the washing up, we can still experiencing it, experience it like it's a threat on our, our lives and our identities and what's important to us. Um, mm. So being really, really kind about that being the case um, we can also not be completely like discouraged by and think that's the, just the way it is. We're always in a process of transformation and there are definitely kinds of therapies which help us um, maybe reset our nervous systems in a more like a, in an intervention kind of way. I think yoga, Bessel van der Kolk speaks yeah. about power of yoga, um, things like that. I, I, yeah, so I just wanted to like deepen out some of that pool a little bit because I don't think for most people it's, it, it feels as easy as just like, sitting and staying and continuing some of us might want to branch into like different kinds of tools or methodologies or wisdom traditions that can help us if we feel like there's something beneath the surface that wants to be worked out and healed i love that yeah thank you for for deepening that out because there is one uh so i'm recently started and joined a men's group and so we're in this group talking about masculine identity and and what it is to be a man in this day and age and what it is to let more feminine identity through someone used this really wonderful phrase of what what might it mean to be a masculine feminist right and so we're like playing with these questions but one voice that comes through that's that's sort of a a version that we all have but there's sort of a unique masculine version at least an american masculine version there's a voice sort of critic uh, a voice that says things like toughen up, man up, don't cry, D- you know, like don't do any of the things that might reveal that you're not as masculine as you want people to think you are. And so this, 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 it is a kind of, it's a, it's an aggressive energy that's turned 
inwards and then can sometimes be turned outwards and do harm upon others because anytime we get too close to something that makes us feel a certain kind of emotion or a certain kind of bodily feeling, the danger signs are really loud, right? And so we're like in this group, we're working with that question. How can we be, how can we just like, what's what's not the like, because it's sort of the, then the default mode is like, okay, got it. I've got an inner critic. Now I've got to, I'm, I'm going to man up and fix my inner critic. And then I'm going to be like the, the most compassionate and emotional. Like there's sort of this like way we trap ourselves in the same energy of problem solving, perfectionism, fixing, all of that. Yeah. And it's like, we collectively as a group of guys are just working with like, what's that, what's a half step towards, not even a full step. What's the first half step towards healing that relationship with that part of ourselves that's inherited all of this cultural and social and genetic baggage around what we're supposed to be in a way that doesn't actually give that, that even more energy to feed off of. And it's a really, it's just, it's really hard. It's really hard. And so I love that you're inviting people into like, just notice where are you being hard on yourself? Mm-hmm. And then, and then make sure you're not hard on yourself for being hard on yourself. Notice that that is some sort of pattern you've inherited and, if meditation is really hard for you, okay, cool. There's no judgment. Sitting sitting still for 10 minutes doesn't make you a better person. <laughs> like it doesn't automatically mean you're great if you can do it or can't do it. So there's sort of this, this way in which we can just find out what is that half step forward towards healing that enables us to be a little more free and a little more able to choose our reality as opposed to just react to it. And that's what I hear in your invitation right now is like find what works for you and then work it for you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm really, like, I'm heartened to hear of men gathering together, sharing their intentions, being willing to look at, you know, maybe more shadow aspects or unhealthy aspects of things that come through in masculinity, which we know, you know, compound and lead to toxicity. So I love that like people are joining together, taking responsibility you know, for themselves and creating a healthier culture for like the next generation to come into. Yeah. So I'm to hear that you're, you're part of that. Yeah. I feel, I feel a deep sense of urgency as a result of recently becoming a father now of two over the past couple of years, there is, there's a way in which that particular choice and that particular reality has plugged me into that lineage you were describing earlier, the sort of cycle of, of life and generational inheritance that we're all a part of, even though it's, mostly invisible and mostly shows up in ways that that if we're not slow and still enough to notice it just shows up in behaviors and actions and thinking patterns that feel like who we are that we think that we inherit and then say oh this is me this is who i am yeah so i hear you saying like no we can actually unpack those and slow it down and maybe even make space if not in our lifetimes in the lifetimes of whoever come next for more choice and more agency to be present than we might have right now in the midst of everything. Yeah. So you, you use the word compassionate, which is a, a, a lovely segue to this book that you've co-written called Compassionate Conversations. Mm-hmm. And um, I want to talk about the book because I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've probably, I've read about 50% of it and I've dipped in and out of other parts of it. And it just, uh, it's really, really fucking good. So one, congrats <laughs> on writing, like congrats on writing a great book that also feels really timely um, in terms of the current p- political moment we're in, the current climate moment we're in, the ways in which we have many instruments of 
polarization, like most, most spaces, most of us are in seem to heighten the ways in which we're opposed to each other. And, and your book is a, is feels to me like a, an answer or a response to that assumption that this is what reality is. There's one, a good side and a bad side. There's a much more nuanced invitation in this book. So I just want to give you props for that, for creating that. I want to talk first though about the word compassion because it's such an important word and, and in the context of what we just explored together, a wonderful way to like give ourselves permission not to be so self-critical or critical of others. Right. So there's that, there's that connotation and quality of compassion, which is really lovely, but then there's sort of, uh, I feel like your book is going further though. Uh I feel like when you, when the book uses the phrase compassion, it's, it's really leaning on the co piece, right? Like if passion is sort of to feel, or in some cases, I think it actually means like the root word of passion in Latin, I think is to suffer. Like it has this really edgy, intense quality, but it's often located in the self. The compassion is located in the collective. And the book seems to be as a whole, a real invitation towards spaces where we go towards the other and in that discover deeper truths and deeper possibilities. And I wonder if you could just say, like, if that resonates with you, if you could say more about why compassionate conversations versus any other number of ways you could have described the work. Yeah. Yeah, uh, definitely. I think, I think you're right. Compassion to me already just denotes some kind of relationship. Mm. Yeah. Like mm. a, a good, it's a place that we can go together kind mm. of feeling. Mm. Um, Gabe sometimes says that Gabe Wilson, my co-author, sometimes says that um, suffering arises as a result of not considering the larger whole. Hmm. So think of a time when you were fighting with a sibling and uh, someone ended up suffering, or or you were you know felt disregarded at work, or you you know did something that I don't know messed something up in in, in the kitchen and led to some someone feeling like are done by suffering is this idea that like we didn't consider that other person we didn't consider that other consequence or we didn't consider you know you you gave the example earlier of like the self-critical talk compassion like I'm suffering because I can't see the wider whole I can't see that I'm I am that yes I am that person that maybe can't meditate but yes I'm also more I'm I'm more than that you know that's not the the final sentence right Mm -hmm. in the story so compassion to me it denotes relationship of being with, like being present to, and also this like wider enveloping kind of quality where we include more. And so, yes, we lean into the other and we are curious about their stories and we're curious about how we can meet in the middle. And um, compassion, you know, I think sometimes in our mainstream talk is associated with a passivity, a softness, Mm. and maybe Mm. even like, in Buddhist, Buddhist terms and Buddhist terms, we'll talk about it as like idiot compassion, which is like if someone's hurting you and you just let them do it over and over again, that's not helpful. Or, or you know, um, so in China, we have like a thing where grandparents, especially when the one child policy was still like the prevailing thing, that they would very much spoil their grandchildren, you know, but but it ultimately, ultimately ends up raising a child that's not very self-capable or something, you know? So it's not, that's not real compassion. That's actually idiot compassion. It's not leading towards the, the real, the real fruit of what's possible. Um, so 
compassion, we hope that in our book we can convey that it can be fierce, it can be generous, it can be, you know, sometimes more dynamic. It's about what's called for in the moment that will allow us to include more of that, that whole, that whole picture. You know, we might think of climate change or say the industrialization um, of our of certain sort of systems and how we do how we do commerce and how we do consumerism like we did not consider the larger whole like we didn't consider the impact on the ozone layer back in mm. the we didn't consider the impact on like you know we think look at pictures now of the of the amazon rainforest and how much it's like you know disappeared over the decades like we didn't consider all the lives in there we didn't consider the medicine that is contained within we didn't consider how you know, if we if we remove that organ of the planet, it's going to lead to a lot more carbon pollution and all the effects. So, so I think that's what I would really want to like say about compassion. And it might be a little bit abstract. So maybe in the conversation, we can get more into the, the gritty of the yeah, that's, yeah, this is super helpful. Um, cool. And I think your book, based on my experience of it so far, does... I don't know if the word compassion needed to be rehabilitated, right? But like that passivity mm-hmm. you alluded to... Um, the softness, the sort of squishiness that I think a lot of people associate with compassion that, it, that, I mean, certainly again, like in the men's group in the masculine energy there, I think there's a connotation of that word compassion that is decidedly non-masculine. And as a result is pushed away by the masculine energy. Right. And so your book is very much reclaiming the depth and dynamism and sort of fierceness. I think you use that word of compassion, mm-hmm. which I love. But then I get, so I get to this place, I get to this place where I think about, for instance, this, this, just this wonderful statement of fact, we didn't consider this, like we didn't, we didn't think through the ways in which our need for, for lumber and farming space and access to oil reserves would wipe out the Amazon rainforest, which is literally an organ of the planet that that oxygenates the whole biosphere. And the, and the more that forest disappears, the sicker the planet potentially gets, or really the sicker we get, the, the biosphere on the planet. So it's like, okay, there's a quality of like just acknowledging, wow, we really didn't, we really didn't see all the way through to these decisions. We got really tunnel vision on how much resource was in that, that rainforest that we could just extract and use. There's a sense though, in which, and maybe you can help me cause I'm having trouble articulating, but there's a, there's a sense in which then it seems to me, to me, a very human quality to retroactively justify something to sort of say, rather than admit that that was a mistake or rather than admit, you know what, Kim, you're right. We didn't really think through those consequences and we need to come back to the table. There's a way in which we can over identify with the choice we've already made and then resist the possibility that that choice was a mistake or that that choice was um, worth revisiting. Right. And we sort of start, we start to really attach ourselves to the choice or the outcome, no matter how terrible it is, right? We're saying like, no, this is me, right? So there's sort of this way in which like, I'm, I'm sort of imagining someone in my head who, and I'm like, how could I ever talk to that person? How could I engage with them in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're being attacked by me, even though a part of me kind of wants to attack them and be like, why the fuck did you do that? Mm-hmm. But also like actually allows them to be in space around that question of what do we do now 
in a way that doesn't make them a pure enemy or a pure villain or a pure whatever, you know, do you see what I'm, do you see where I'm trying yeah. to get to? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, How do we have that conversation? Well, I mean, it, that's, that's, that's where my, that's where my mind is at. Like, how do we have this conversation? I think maybe first thing to just to parse out a little bit, because it's not going to be a one size fits all solution. Yeah. There are some tables that we're going to sit down to where we are going to be having hard negotiations mm. where the other person's um, worldview level of development, their loyalties um, who it is they're here on behalf of, all of those things are going to deeply condition where they can go and what they're willing to give mm. and what they're willing to hear and all of that, right? And then there's other conversations where we're sitting down um, with our family at the dinner table and there's just an uncle who we'd really love to be able to connect with more, even though we feel differently to them. And so these are different kinds of conversations, mm. right? Mm. And then there's some kinds of conversations where we're like actually hold a position of power and we you know, we might have some choices to make that are going to impact people around us in a way. And so how do you have conversations with, with all of them? And um, so just to say it's, it's a myriad world out there. I think though that um, choosing, choosing the, the example that you give of like with some, maybe the other person has built up um maybe an identity, like they're invested in doing things a certain way. I think it's very easy to see that when we look at like the kind of political discourses mm -hmm. around, especially in this country, you know, take an issue like abortion or gun control, like it gets super rigidified into yes. like one's identity. Um, I think we're, we're at a moment where like we human beings, we're super identified with our values as like making up who we are, our belief systems as making up who we are. Um, and I never, I don't think it's really ever a good idea to enter a conversation trying to change someone's mind about what mm -hmm. that is. That's mm -hmm. never been successful for me in the past. Mm -hmm. And so I might still have the mm -hmm. desire to do it sometimes. Um, but it's not really how I like to engage. I like to set an intention for myself as to what I'd really like to do in that conversation. Because then I can also be square with myself. Like, what am I really trying to do here? If the answer is trying to change their mind, I, like I said, I don't think that's a good idea. Sometimes the best I can hope for is, can we really hear each other? Mm. Share points of view that might not agree and walk away from this still being friends. Mm. I might set myself an intention like that. And I might tell the other person at the outset of the conversation, like, hey, we're about to talk about something which I know is, is, is challenging for us. Can we agree to, to really listen to each other? Mm. Can we agree that our differences can teach us something? Or can we, you know, can we, I like to do that kind of legwork at the beginning mm. of a conversation because that at least gives us, um, you know, when you wander off the path, off the trail, at least gives you that reference point to come back to so that mm. if things get heated and you do start feeling like this is turning into a bit of a, a tug of war with a rope between you as to who's right, um, you have some hope of being able to come back and say, like, I think when we started this, what we really wanted to do is better understand where each other were coming mm. from. Mm. Um, and I believe that, you know, Sam, is Sam Harris? I'm not sure. Says so something like, it's, we're moving forward as a result of a series of conversations. So I think we should also be humble about what we can achieve in any one shot and know that this whole game is practice. This whole game is like moving forward one step at a time, one conversation at a time. And the best that I can 
ask of myself these days is to be a living example of the curiosity mm. possible, you know, uh, so yeah. stuck in my own views. Like I want to embody curiosity so that people feel able to tell me what they think and believe. And then, and then because I'm a mediator, I can reflect back. To, I have some, and we teach this in the book, some of the skills of like really reflective listening because giving someone experience that they've been heard is satisfying, it's soothing, it's relieving. It allows them to feel dignified as a human being. Mm. And then from that point, we're in a much better position to ask a question like, would you like to hear what I think about this issue? Or, you know, that being the case for you, mm. can we explore something together now? You know, and, and people are a lot more willing to go with you if you've given that, that, that respect of like listening to what they have to say rather than shutting it down immediately, thinking that we already know who they are, you know? all of those um, can really obstruct the connection. That just like, thank you for that. Those distinctions. One person, you just like helped me see that even in my question, I was still stuck in the, in the modality of like, there's a right and a wrong. And my job in a conversation like that is to help correct the, the, the wrong that I see on the other side. Right. And so it's like, it, there was already baked into my question was, an, was a sort of, fail or succeed framework of like, either I'm going to convince that person that we need to do things completely differently or I'm not. And if I don't, I failed. <laughs> and that sort of one shot all or nothing framework. It's like so internalized. I sense in all of us that it's hard to remember that that conversation is, as you said, this process that it is a, what I'm hearing you say, it's almost more important that you create the conditions for people to keep conversing over a period of time rather than create the conditions for a certain specific outcome to emerge. Uh, and yeah. if it doesn't, then you failed. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think the conversations that keep us in relationship are ultimately going to be more prosperous for our development together, our evolution together than, than yeah, the one and one done thing. That said, I got to like, I got to add though, that there are some conversations where we want to show up as advocates, mm. you know? Mm. And, and so that there's differences, right? Like there's some conversations where we are there because we care about the relationship itself. Maybe we mm. need to work with someone and it's vital that we meet in the middle, that we be, build a bridge. The intention and the desire for that relationship is going to be super different than if you're in a position where you're advocating for change and with all the social justice movements that are, you know, you know we might say that the, the racial justice movement is kind of climaxing or, around like the intensity of the, what we can now see as unjust, completely racist and completely unacceptable behavior, you know, killing people in the street. There are moments when our advocacy, standing up for our values and being quite, you know, decisive about what we're saying, that's going to be the skillful move. Mm. I don't want to... Mm. And I want to take the wind out of people's sails when they're actually, you know, engaging in part of that, that the good fight, as it were. Um, nevertheless, when you come to certain, I mean, that that's still true. And there are going to be conversations that happen in local governments, are going to happen in the UN, are going to happen between, you know, international NGOs and grassroots organizations in different countries i used to work more in the international context so i really care about these intersections of how people are coming together and those conversations where people are making decisions that will influence policy law um you know 
Mm. economic direction in which we go, those conversations are ones where I think the the skills in our book, um, you are no longer just there advocating where it turns into like how many people are there. Or, you know, it's not like about who's got more volume or more bodies mm. in the room, mm. but rather what's the truth in what we are saying? Because when that hooks into the person who you think is your opponent, mm. And you can meet in what is true and you feel like you're both pointing towards what's in the highest good of the whole. That's when the creativity can really come in and serve the mm. whole. And those are the skills that we want to be able to cultivate too, mm. along with our advocacy, along with our education. Um, mm. So it's, it's a tall, it's a tall order. But <laughs> I do believe we are made for these times, you know? Yeah. No one else here yeah. but us. Yes. And I like, there's there's at least two threads I want to pull on there. One is if you are someone who identifies as an activist, I think there's still, there's still meta wisdom in what you first shared, which is to say, maybe the conversation you are having and you continue to have as an, as an activist and an advocate is one where you are really pointed and sharp. And that's skillful and powerful. But I know a lot of people who in that world who, who get exhausted and who get burnt out and who lose sight of the fact that no matter how pointed any single conversation is, it's hard to say when the moment's going to be that, that, that the tipping point happens. And so there's this sort of quality of, there's a different kind of ongoing engagement that activists and advocates need to cultivate in themselves to stay resilient in the face of the counter pressure for the system to just stick the way it is. Right. And so like, I want to like acknowledge that it's a both and it's both that you can sharpen your, your sort of metaphorical sword and develop patience for yourself for not being able to solve the systemic problem with one speech or one rally or one, whatever the case may be. Right? Yes. We do have to take a long-term view. Yeah. Definitely. And, and then as, as that, as that truth surfaces that we really need the advocates and activists who can, who can do that well and skillfully you will, you sort of point to that there's all of these other parts of the system that are in play you know, political parts, legislative parts, um, where that can be influenced and impacted by the activism that's happening, let's say, on, a, on the streets over here, but ultimately will require a different set of skills and qualities in conversation that are also worth developing. Like, I think there's a kind of, I guess what I'm tuning into, is there a way in which those of us who aren't activists often think that it's the activist's job to do all the work, when in reality, it seems to me that it's like, their job is to use that sharp sword to create a, uh, to like widen the crack just enough that more of us who have different skill sets and are at different parts of the system can then have that conversation with our uncle over the dinner table or have that conversation with our boss or have that conversation with a legislator or an influencer or whatever the case may be. So there's mm-hmm. sort of also a both in there and that all of us in our own unique place in the system can either choose to perpetuate the system or can choose to act in the system in a way that collectively increases the odds that we get better outcomes for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big both and. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so as you, as you share with us a reminder that there's really many myriad entry points and a lot of, a lot of the skillfulness depends on the context that a skillful litigator or a skillful activist both need negotiation skills and conversational skills and all these things, but the way they deploy them are going to be really different. Mm-hmm. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I think sort of I, I would like point back at something I said earlier about it's the fluidity and the flexibility mm. with which we can take up those different roles or take up those different storylines mm. and bring it forward just a little bit. You know, even the most potent activists who might have incredible dynamic directional ways of being also need to collaborate with their peers to build mm. a movement, mm. you know? Mm. Like the organizers of Black Lives Matter also need to be able to hear one another so that they can build something together that is yeah. representative of the diversity of who they are. Mm. Right? You mm. know? So, so I mm. think it's there's so many ways in which we can practice. And I, I was a lawyer for a little bit, like a short, a short little stint. It wasn't quite my jam. Um, but it's really cool now that, you know, in some of my work, I, I actually help women with their negotiation skills. And it's really cool to be able to pull on like that piece in my background and use it in this context where I know that these women, they're like, they're emerging leaders. They're freaking fascinating in what they want to bring to the world and how they want to utilize what they have, their gifts, their talents, their, their resource, their natural innate resource. So helping them negotiate better and ask for what they want. And it's just like incredibly satisfying to me. And I like to think That's that I'm just, giving them more colors in their paint box to paint with for when the right moment arises. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Brilliant. There's this sort of way in which we retroactively can look back on our journey so far and realize that there are things that felt like dead ends or diversions that actually become really powerful in a new context if we remember to draw on them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I want to just check on the time. Okay, we've we've only got a few more minutes. Gosh, I knew this was going to happen. This always happens. Like I could totally talk to you for another hour or two easily. Um, You're such a good interviewer. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. This has really been rich. I guess if if we can squeeze a little more juice up before we have to come to our pause, there are two two pieces of the book that just felt really for me of the moment and really resonant. And one is is the exploration of political correctness. And the other is you use the word uh, shadow in the book. We might talk about like the invisible dynamics and I, and I actually have an instinct, although I'm not quite sure how the, the dots connect that those two are actually really intimately related. But I'm wondering if you could, as we kind of come down the home stretch, I wonder if you could pull on one of those threads and take us into sort of the parts of, conversations that can often go off the rails if we're not aware of kind of the stuff that's hidden underneath the surface. Uh, if we're not aware of that, that what we say might mean one thing to someone, but what, what someone else hears in that same word is something completely different, right? Like, so there's sort of a way in which language has shadows, like political mm-hmm. correct language has a shadow. Mm-hmm. And then there's also a way in which, which we as individuals and as groups have shadows. We have kind mm-hmm. of our trauma and our beliefs and all the things under the surface that we're not conscious of. So there's just something in that mix that I want to make sure we pull out for the listeners and yeah. love to hear what was responding for you around there. Yeah. I think it's an important, it's an important sort of question in this area. Um, if I was to bring myself into what I think, because re- there's so much that I want to say, mm. about, <laughs> what if I could really like find what I think matters in common in both is, well, the conclusion that I have is that we need each other. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. We can't do this alone by virtue of having two eyes out of the front of our heads. We can't see behind us. We Mm. need each other to gain a fuller perspective, to include more perspectives, to gain a more rich understanding of what is this life? What is this life and what is happening here? Because, you know, political correctness, and you're so right, like by choosing one word, which has many meanings and associations, we are by, you know, inherently, we're not choosing six other words, which have Mm. a lot of things. And those and those associations and meanings for some people are going to be different to what you might mean them to be. So yeah, of course there's like going to be that, that shadow other side. And um, the thing that I think is interesting to think about is um, so with our individual shadow. Um, so Jung says that shadow is anything that we can't like I- identify with personally. So like, I'm not racist. They are, Mm. I'm not lazy. They are. Mm. Um, And with political correctness, I think something, what the, the seed of it, I trust, I trust the intention behind it. I trust that what we are trying to do is use words that don't have as many negative meanings for other people. For example, um, you know, offensive racial terms for human beings. Like we're not doing that anymore. We're not using that word because it has these associations which are mm-hmm. negative and, and harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, what falls into shadow, I think, is um, so when you create that rule and say this is how we're talking about it, we're not using this word or we're not using that word or if you use this word, it means that about you. The shadow we mm-hmm. create is one mm-hmm. of complete intolerance for anyone who hasn't followed the same story as us to get to this point, Mm. they might have an entirely different set of meanings and associations. And yet we're painting them with the same brush that we have chosen for like, why we're not going to use that word because that's a racist expression or something. Yeah. It's almost like the, it's almost like the, the double-edged sword of that, of that recognition that language can be really hurtful and that it comes loaded with historical baggage and that, we want to we want to find collective language that allows us to move forward together. The shadow side of that, I'm hearing you say, is it also then becomes a tool by which we can project, to use Jung's definition of shadow, we can project the parts of us that we don't want to own onto other people yeah. because they're not using the language that, that exactly. we We're think doing it should it be right. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. So gotcha. if you're in the moment, like, do you have any in the moment stories about or examples about a move you could make that you're seeing that dynamic start to get amplified you're seeing you're seeing the sort of the arbiters of what is allowable um or or the inverse like you're seeing people really resist what's being what's quote-unquote allowable that can quickly spiral into you know just throwing shit at each other really quickly so like how as a facilitator, as, as someone who's helping mediate that intensity, what's a move that you make either at the start of the meeting or in the moment? Or like, how are you navigating that, that complexity? And how might then we learn a bit about that in our own lives? Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I think I do, maybe as a mediator or as a facilitator, is simply bring something to awareness that is not... Um, not being explicitly acknowledged. Mm. So maybe if there's a, so if there's a conversation and it kind of like it's going sideways because there's a term or a tone of voice that's being used that, that some people are reacting to and feeling 
sort of defensive around or aggressive around even, um, I would simply want to bring that to light. See, I, I noticed that there is a term being used, which I think has meanings, different meanings for different people. Maybe that's something that's worth exploring together mm. that we can get back on the same page so we can mm. learn about what those differences are. Because, you know, if you begin to tease some of that stuff out and you, if people have the staying power, you know, a lot of the time we'll find that the negative associations are being somewhat blanket attributed and the people on the other side might might instead have a different account of what that word means to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a bit like, um, it's like our assumptions actually do more damage when mm-hmm. we let, let them go unchecked. Um, you, because you asked the question of like, well, it's something that we could also do at the beginning. I think at the beginning, maybe if I was setting ground rules for people or saying like, this is the conversation we want to have. And it was around something that could bring in some politically correct language. Maybe something that I would say is, um, let's notice when the how of our conversation is preventing us from having the conversation Mm. itself. Mm. Let's be curious about that together. Mm. When do we start turning on each other because of how we're showing up to this that's preventing us from talking about what we actually came to talk about? Mm. Um, and I know that like there's 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 more nuance to this than can be maybe sort of just shared super brief right now. Um, but I think that people feel relieved when they when something is acknowledged that they're not able to talk about you know, or it's just like becoming bigger than them. I think it's actually relieving when we can notice, you know, in the book we talk about power and we talk about privilege, um, which I think are big topics that also kind of connect in with this, this conversation we're having. Um, But when you can name power in the room and then begin to use it consciously in a distributive way to create more power for people Mm. rather than just an unconscious power over situation, that has an amazingly like beneficial effect for people, how they feel about themselves, mm. what they feel is possible. Mm. Um, and it, it takes some guts sometimes to name something that, that people don't want to say. Mm. Um, but I also think like I, I've come to believe more in our resilience, you know? Um, yeah. And I know that that resonates with you too. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that trusting ourselves, like, we can handle this. Um, and we can handle this together and we can't do it alone. Maybe these are things that I affirm to myself in the work so that I can continue with it because it does feel a little scary out there at times. Yeah. yeah I hope that helps. It's, that's hard. So, to, that's no, it's hard. I know. It's a lot to ask in the, in the last few minutes to sort of unpack but yeah what I'm there's a few things I'm tuning into that I'll underline that feel really important and you said earlier in the conversation that like what would it look like to embody curiosity and I hear that again there's like in the moment curiosity that can become kind of a almost like a superpower of just oh how fascinating there this word keeps getting said and every time it gets said the group seems to get further and further apart from each other and seems to get less and less able to talk about the thing that we thought we were here to talk about. So rather than try and like suit, sort of soothe or like there's all these other, I think, natural moves that, that we would tend to want to make. We pick a side or tell people, hey, get back on topic or just like, let's pause. And I'm just noticing this. Is that right? Like just that moment of curiosity can shift energy. 
Yeah. And that feels like a really important meta skill that we should, that if we all spent more time developing our capacity to notice and be curious, a lot of these conversations could probably go a lot further. Cause like you said, we actually have the resilience. We can handle it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then there's, there's something you talked about power. There's something like when that shift happens in my limited experience, I've noticed that people actually start not only, not only does the dynamic start to correct itself. So they're kind of getting further and further apart. You help them correct. You elevate some voices in the room. You give people more power. There seems to be a drawing closer that can happen. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's almost like there's some kind of like sort of dynamic. I might like, people can't see me, but I'm moving my hands closer and further apart. And it's like you, you're, you shift that energy and suddenly people who weren't even not only now can they talk to each other, they can actually get closer to each other and see each other in ways that they couldn't before. So do you have you, is that right? Yes. And the word that leaps to my mind as I'm hearing you talk about this is intimacy Mm. coming into a deeper intimacy with each other. Um, Even the most powerful people that we might think of in the world are vulnerable in some Mm. way. There is some part Mm. of their heart or being that is, is tender or that they are trying to protect, you know? And um, so, so those, those things that can bring us into connection, making an intervention that just clarifies what's being felt, but not said, mm-hmm. you know, can draw us into intimacy. Um, I think that when we really listen to each other very deeply, we can cultivate a lot of intimacy. And I, I this quote kind of popped into my head earlier. I'm not sure if it's still relevant now, um, but maybe because we you know, touched on some of the, the climate changes and the and right out here with you know with uh, the fires. Sometimes the looking outside can feel pretty apocalyptic at times. Um, mm. Joanna Macy says, um, like we might we not we might not make it, but at least we can go down together, looking into each other's eyes. <laughs> it's like. And I, you know, and I, I'm actually an optimist. I am like, despite all things, I'm actually an optimist and my efforts are not relying on a need for any of this to go a certain way. I'm not attached to outcomes. You know, I don't, my work doesn't become um, invalid or useless if the human population gets wiped out, you know, Mm even in the concentration camps, there were rabbis who were teaching on ethics. You know, there's something incredibly Mm. resilient about who we are. Mm. And I want to do that. I want to be able to look into the eyes of my supposed enemy and see their common humanity and allow us to be reformed in that fire. You know? Um, So yeah, intimacy is a a key (laughs) one. Thank you. Kim, that was so powerful. Can you can you just like, for my sake and anyone listening, can you say that quote one more time? Just 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 I want to hear it again. Yeah, for sure. Um, we might not make it, but at least we can go down together, looking into each other's eyes. Yeah, I'm not yeah. sure that's exactly it, but that's, that's you, know, you feel it, right? Yeah, I just feel that so deeply. That possibility that it really the future is unknown. But it seems to me that that if we keep polarizing and pulling each other per, further and further apart and not looking each other in, in the eyes, the odds go up pretty high that we're not going to make it. 100%. Yeah. 
But if we can just like acknowledge that we don't, we can't ultimately control the outcome, but if we show up for each other in the way that you just described so beautifully, the, the odds go up that we will make it. And God, yeah. what, a, what a world we'd be in if we made it and we could yeah. look at each other in the eyes on the other side. Yeah. You know, there, there's some conflicts um, where we are, where it's the scarcity of resources that are fueling those conflicts. And in those, yeah. sometimes people think that we should talk about that a different way as opposed to like identity conflicts or cultural conflicts, because sometimes, um, you know, because it just, it changes things when it's the last handful of food. You know? But if I'm looking at someone's, uh, looking into someone's eyes, what's, whatever is in my hand, they're getting half of it. Mm. You know what I mean? And mm. I want to live in a way where we're all extending to each other with that same spirit of like, we're in this together. Yeah. You no? Know? Yeah. Oh, Kim, thank you. That was really, I feel like I needed this conversation and I need to hear <laughs> it land in that exact place as we, as we look out on the world right now. So really touched and moved. If people want to, um, I'll include it all in the show notes and all that good stuff, but if people listening right now want to learn more about your work or about the book, where should they head on the interwebs? Uh, so either check out my website, is KimberlyLow.com, and we also, the book is CompassionateConversations.com. Um, I'm on the socials if people want to check out my, my work, my writing, my sharing there. Um, and yeah, I would just be very happy if anyone wanted to get in touch connecting with people around these kinds of themes like it's my job it's what i'm here for (laughs) yeah Yeah, i can i can feel that and experience that very clearly so thank you for being here for that in this conversation and in the world and i'm excited to see how everything continues to unfold in your work it's been a real treat and a real privilege yeah thank you andy it's been so good to have this conversation with you and i have a tremendous amount of respect for you and all that you're doing so happy to walk on this path together. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach where you can also sign up for my newsletter learn about my transformational coaching work and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings in the meantime I'm wishing you a life of purpose power and presence we need you now more than ever